scripture reading is from Genesis 1, verses 1 through 25, and then verse 31. If you're using the Blue Pew Bible in front of you, it can be found on page 1. Um, please rise for the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. James 1, uh, Genesis 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind, on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Verse 31. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for this reading of your holy and inerrant word. And now we pray that your spirit give us help in the preaching and the listening of your word. And I pray, Lord, that you would be magnified 
glorified in our eyes and our hearts and that our joy may be increased and our faith deepened. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I am excited, church, to kick off a sermon series in the book of Genesis. Now, just to let you know up front, we are not covering all 50 chapters because to, to do so and, and to do it well would take you know, well over the, the, the course of a year. And since this is a, a fairly transient congregation uh, where many of you are probably only going to be in Houston for a season, what we typically do is, is we purposely plan for having shorter series, especially if we're going through uh, longer books of the Bible, so that you can be exposed to a good diversity of sermons in both the Old and New Testament and among different genres. So what we're going to do for the next three months is only focus on Genesis 1 to 11. And Lord willing, we'll be able to come back to Genesis down the road and be able to cover more ground but, I mean, honestly, there's just plenty enough to cover in just these first 11 chapters. The word Genesis comes from the Greek for beginning. So this is a book of beginnings. Now, the central story of Genesis revolves around a covenant family headed by a man named Abraham. The Lord bound himself in a covenant relationship with one man and his family, promising to bless them in order that they might therefore be a blessing to all the families of the earth. And so Genesis recounts the beginning of this family's story and serves really as an introduction to the rest of Scripture, where we see this covenant family continue to grow and expand until they become a covenant community that spans the entire globe. And that covenant community, of course, is what we call the church, and it includes all of us who share in the faith of Abraham. But of course, that particular story doesn't begin until Genesis 12. And so the first 11 chapters, the ones that we're going to focus on, stretch back even further to tell the story of really the beginning of the world, the beginning of the universe itself. Asking the question, where did we come from? Where did all creation come from? That's the story that we want to explore in this series of ours, especially as we're starting off looking in Genesis chapter 1. And the story of origins, it fascinates everyone. On Christmas morning last week, while we were all busy opening presents, NASA was busy launching a massive telescope into space. It's on its way right now, one million miles from, it's going to eventually be one million miles from Earth orbiting the sun. And along the way, this telescope is going to slowly and carefully unfold a massive heat shield the size of a tennis court and 18 highly sensitive mirrors spanning 21 feet in diameter. It's called the James Webb Space Telescope, and it's replacing the famous Hubble Telescope, which has been showing its age. The Webb Telescope will give us the highest resolution images we have ever seen of stars and galaxies, because unlike the Hubble, this telescope can detect infrared light, which allows it to gaze even further into the cosmos. The news article that I read said that the Webb Telescope will allow astronomers to observe light 
from the very first galaxies that formed 100 million years after the Big Bang. They're describing that like taking baby pictures of the universe. So in this analogy, it's like the Hubble gave us toddler pictures of the universe, but so far we've never seen baby pictures. And so, you know, we, we don't know what the universe was like in the beginning. Well, according to astronomers, the pictures that will hopefully be sent back by this space telescope, if everything goes right, will, quote, help answer fundamental questions about our existence, the fabric of space, and the universe at large. Now, that's pretty impressive. That's, that's a tall order. And all of that will cost an estimated $11 billion. $11 billion to help answer questions about our existence and the origin of the universe. Now, friends, don't get me wrong. I am totally excited to see what this telescope can do. I, I can't wait for some of those images to come back. And I'm amazed behind the science and technology of all of that. But I, I'm just kind of shocked that we're paying $11 billion to answer questions that the Bible has been answering for free for thousands of generations. The most fundamental things that we need to know about our existence and where the universe came from can be found in this morning's passage in Genesis 1. That's what's so amazing about God's word. So I hope you're excited. No, know you don't need to pay $11 billion to come and hear about our very existence and the origin of our universe. So that's what we're going to be doing this morning. Now, my goal is to highlight five fundamental truths about creation and its relationship to God. If you want to follow along, look in your bulletin. There's an outline listing those five fundamental truths that we're going to be walking through. So today's message is going to be more of an overview of Genesis 1. In the weeks to come, we're going to be diving deeper into this chapter. So the first fundamental truth to consider is how utterly dependent creation is on God. God doesn't need creation to be God. He, he would still exist and he would still be supremely glorious and worthy of praise, even if he never created a single thing. But creation, on the other hand, needs God to exist. Everything in creation would be nothing if not for God. The Bible begins with these famous words. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Implying that God existed before the beginning of creation. God doesn't have a beginning, but the universe does. And that's a huge claim stated right off the bat. Right off the bat, it sets Genesis apart from the various worldviews that sees the universe as eternal. The universe as something that has always existed. There are various pantheistic religions that treat the universe as somehow divine. And so it has always been. And so in those worldviews, they typically view time and history in a cyclical pattern. They see it as one big circle. So in a sense, there are many beginnings for the universe. But you know, it's not just, it's not just pantheistic religions 
that would see the universe as eternal. If you think about it, in the first half of the 20th century, astronomers and cosmologists would have held something like a steady state theory of the universe. In that theory, the steady state theory, the universe has no beginning and it has no end and it always stays the same. It's steady in the amount of matter that is out there. So in other words, the universe was seen as eternal. But by the 1950s, that theory was replaced by what we know as the Big Bang Theory, which argues for an actual beginning. The idea is that all matter in the universe originated from a, singular, a, a point of singularity and has ever since been infinitely expanding. So the dominant view of science right now affirms what Genesis 1-1 has taught all along, that creation has a beginning. That's why, according to the biblical worldview, time and history are viewed not as a circle, but as a line, a straight line, which, of course, raises the natural question, where is that line pointing? What is the line pointing to? What's the point? Now, the answer comes later on, but right here, right off in the beginning of Genesis, we're given the hint that the universe has a point. It has a purpose. And that means life in this universe also has direction and purpose. But before we, we go there and, and see what the Bible has to say about that, let's just focus really on just how much creation depends on God for its existence. I mean, just think about it. The universe needs a creator God because the universe could not have created itself. If the universe has a beginning, which both the Bible and science would suggest, then how can something that once did not exist suddenly come into existence all by itself? How can it suddenly have a beginning all by itself? If there once was no universe, then it makes no sense at all to, su to suggest that suddenly the universe created itself. Something that does not exist cannot bring itself into existence. That would be illogical. That would be irrational. If the universe has a beginning, then something that pre-exists the universe, something that exists outside of the universe, something that without a beginning must have then created the universe. Something or someone without a beginning must have ignited the Big Bang from which the universe continues to grow and expand. Of course, the Bible's answer is God. Scripture doesn't teach that the universe is eternal, but it does teach that God is. And this eternal being with no beginning created everything that has a beginning. In other words, he made the universe ex nihilo. That's Latin for out of nothing. God created everything out of nothing. Now, I know someone could still argue that that's a mystery and that's still a matter of faith. 
And we grant that, yes. But at least, at least it's not irrational. Within the confines of logic and rational thought, it would be irrational to believe that creation created itself. You either have to believe that creation has always been, it's eternal, which is what pantheism would say, or, or that steady state theory, or, or you believe that an eternal being without a beginning created everything that has a beginning. So I, I grant you that the Bible's answer to the origin of the universe is mysterious, but at least it's not irrational. You might still refuse to believe in an eternal spiritual being who exists outside of the material, material universe, but at least please concede that that's a presupposition that you brought to this question. You're starting off your pursuit of an answer already ruling out some potential options. But if you keep an open mind, then I think it makes a lot of sense to suggest that the universe is not eternal in itself and that it didn't create itself, but rather the universe's existence is utterly dependent on a creator God who exists outside of the universe who has no beginning. Friends, it's so important for us to maintain this distinction between the creator and his creation. Because if you go outside and you enjoy creation, you will come to see that many aspects of creation are so beautiful, so glorious, that we are tempted at times to worship them. The celestial stars, the ancient mountains, the thunderous storms, the towering trees, they all reflect God's glory, but they must not be substituted for his glory. We have to learn how to enjoy and to respect creation without worshiping it, to find pleasure in creation, but not apart from a grateful recognition that it comes from the creative hands of a creator God. Now that leads us, of course, to our second fundamental truth about creation that is going to be found in this morning's text. Our second fundamental truth is this. Creation is personally fashioned by God. He didn't just wind up the clock of creation and then just let it unwind all on its own. No, God played an active and direct role in fashioning creation according to his sovereign will. Now, this idea of one creator God making all things is going to differ dramatically from the ancient Near Eastern accounts of creation where they typically would teach that the universe erupts as a consequence of a divine struggle between the gods. The universe is seen as a byproduct of battle. The Canaanites, for example, they believe that their supreme god, Baal, engaged in battle and defeated the goddess of chaos called Yom. And if you, in, in Hebrew, Yom means sea or ocean. Now, to appreciate the significance, you have to understand that among ancient cultures, the sea was deified as a god or a goddess of chaos set against a god of order. 
And so in Canaanite mythology, you have the god of order, Baal, banishing Yam, the sea, below the earth. And he, 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 he defeats Yam, and that's how they understand uh, dry land being formed. Now compare that mythology to the creation account according to the Israelites. They used similar symbolism, but you'll see that it's with very different circumstances. So in Genesis, there's only one God. There are no rivals for him to battle. Now, we are told, though, that in the beginning, the earth was filled with chaos, one big sea. It was covered with primordial waters. It was, quote, Genesis 1-2, without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So, the earth was filled with one big sea of chaos. But then, then God speaks into the chaos, and order is established. The seas roll back and dry land appears. But do you see the difference? The difference with other ancient Near Eastern mythologies? Pagan gods in those mythologies derive their authority to rule by virtue of conquest. But the Lord God derived his authority by virtue of creation. By being the creator of all, he is Lord of all. He is ruler of all things because he created all things. He personally fashioned it. Now, many have helpfully pointed out that Genesis is not intended to serve as a scientific textbook. Uh, so if we're expecting it to answer all of our scientific inquiries, then we are asking it to function beyond its literary intent. And that's why it's very good to remind ourselves that Genesis 1 is more concerned with the who and the why of creation. That is, who made all things and why, for what purpose? Those are the questions that are definitely forefront in our text. But having said that, that's not to say that the how of creation completely goes unaddressed. Granted, it does leave out a whole lot of details, but if we're taking the text seriously, it does say that God made everything by speaking. I mean, in multiple places here in chapter 1, we read, and God said, and it was so. And God said, and it was so. It goes on and on with that, with, with, with that phrase. And later on in the New Testament, in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3, there it reaffirms that this is how God actually created. Hebrews 11, verse 3 says, By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. In other words, the universe is a product of divine speech. The Word of God created it all. Now, that doesn't answer all of our questions. We realize that. It doesn't answer the age-old question of the age of the earth. 
I don't think there's a definitive answer here in Genesis chapter 1. It's really a legitimate point of disagreement between Christians. That question should not divide us as Christians. The text could support a young earth. You could read this and you could interpret it as God, when he spoke everything into existence, he spoke it into existence in six literal 24-hour days, and he created it all with the appearance of age. That's a legitimate reading. Or it, the text could support an old earth. Some suggest that God spoke creation into existence in six epochs or time periods. So in interpreting the word day differently. Or some would say that, no, he, he did create in six literal 24-hour days, but with unspecified lengths of time in between each of those days. Or some would, go, some would say that there is a gap between verses 1 and 2, a gap of millions of years, which would therefore explain geological and astronom astronomical age. So, there are various interpretations here, but whether you arrive at a young earth or an old earth, the one thing that we can all agree on is that God created the heavens and the earth by speaking them into existence. Now, there's, of course, much more that could be said and much more to be explored about the how of creation, but at minimum, we should affirm that God used divine speech, which is why it's rather hard to reconcile what's taught here in Genesis 1 with modern evolutionary theory. Some have suggested that God spoke creation into existence, but only a primordial, undeveloped form of creation. So, yes, he was directly involved in verse 1, but after verse 1, he just took his hands off for the rest of it. So he just then, for, then just let natural random processes take over so that an undeveloped earth without form and void was gradually populated with more complex and diverse species. But the idea that random processes are the underlying driving force for the development of creation, it doesn't really seem to fit the narrative of Genesis 1. I, I'm not saying that random mutations and natural selection have no place whatsoever in explaining the diversity of life on earth, but we end up ignoring what Genesis 1 actually says if we don't acknowledge God's direct and active involvement in the entire creation account. Because when it says in, for example, verse 11, that God created all the plants and trees, each according to its kind, or the sea creatures and birds according to their kind, or the living creatures on earth according to their kind, you get the impression that God was directly and actively involved in creating the actual kind of plant or the kind of animal. But a harmonization of modern evolutionary theory with theism would result in a reading of Genesis 1 that says 
God spoke a fish or a bird or a dog into existence, but really he just spoke a primordial soup of biological matter into existence. And after hundreds of millions of years and hundreds of millions of random mutations, you gradually get a fish, bird, or dog. Now again, I'm not suggesting that we should expect Genesis 1 to give a full explanation of how he brought about such a diversity of life on earth, but I am suggesting what the text says, that it does say that God was actively involved in every aspect of creation through divine speech, which therefore means that creation is so intricate and so diverse not because of randomness, but because of design, divine design. Now, this idea that creation reflects divine design leads us to our third fundamental truth. Creation is carefully ordered by God. Carefully ordered by God. We saw earlier in verse 2 that the earth starts off without form and void. It's wild. It's empty. But then in the subsequent days of creation, God tames the wild and he brings order out of chaos. We see him separate light from darkness on day one. Then he separates the waters from the sky, in the water, water in the sky, um, in the clouds. He separates that from the waters below in the oceans. And he does that on day two. And then on day three, he separates the dry land from the sea, from all that chaos. So he's establishing boundaries within his created order. And then on days four to six, God fills up the emptiness with the sun, moon, and stars, with fish and birds, with land animals, and of course, with human beings made in his own image. And notice, notice how in verse 16, the sun and moon are given authority to govern the heavens, to rule over the day and night, and in verse 28, humans are given authority to govern the earth, to rule over the fish and the birds and every living thing that moves on the earth. He's giving authority to created things, to rule over the rest of creation. He's establishing order. Creation is orderly, not random, not unpredictable. The plants and trees produce seeds and fruits predictably. The sun and moon move across the sky with regularity. I mean, imagine if that wasn't so. Imagine how terrible it would be to live in a world as described in verse 2. A world without form and void. A world of chaos. A world without order. Imagine if... If you weren't entirely sure that the sun is going to rise tomorrow morning, because, you know, most times it does, but every so often it refuses. Or how could you function? How, how could you cook and, and feed yourself if you can only guesstimate that water is going to boil at 100 degrees Celsius? Most often, yes, but not always. Or, or what, if, what if you're only 90% sure that the gravitational force of the earth is going to remain constant tomorrow. Can you imagine how difficult life would be? We, we shouldn't take the orderliness of creation for granted, especially since we do know that it once was a world without form and void. 
Thank God it's not like that now. And if your studies, uh, if your profession involves you in the sciences, if you're an engineer or if you're a doctor or a researcher, be grateful that the orderliness of creation makes science possible, makes your profession possible. All scientific research and reasoning assumes the orderliness and regularity of nature. Scientific pursuits could not be undertaken without that precondition, that belief that the world is orderly and that it consistently follows a set of natural laws. So I think it's ironic that the more we learn about the orderliness of creation, about how the world follows these certain natural laws, the more some people are going to conclude that, therefore, we don't need God. As in, we don't need a God hypothesis anymore to explain the mysteries of nature. You know, what ancient peoples once attributed to God, you know, the, the, the lightning bolt or the thunderclap in the sky, we can now explain with the laws of science. So the explainability of nature gives some people grounds to no longer believe in God. But Genesis 1 suggests that the orderliness and the regularity of nature and thus its explainability is actually evidence, not of God's absence, but of his wisdom and his orderliness and ultimately of his goodness towards us. It's because of his goodness, the goodness of his created order, that we can live in a world that is actually habitable, where human life can actually flourish. We should thank God for his goodness in this ordered creation of his. So it's this goodness that leads to our fourth fundamental truth about creation. And this is that creation is intrinsically good according to God. Creation is intrinsically good. In Genesis 1, we're told seven times that creation is good. And by verse 31, we're told that God, at the end of the sixth day, he stood back, took in everything that he had made, and he declared that it is very good. Now, I know that might seem obvious to you, but that's not obvious for billions of people in the world because many religions embrace a dualistic worldview that rejects the material world, seeing it as inherently corrupted and evil. And that's why they portray salvation as an escape from the body into a purely spiritual existence. Nowadays, it's not even, the, even religious people who hold that kind of a worldview. Nowadays, even non-religious people people who want nothing to do with God, would also reject the goodness of the created order. And that includes the goodness of the body that you are born with. Many reject the goodness and beauty of our given body shape or our facial appearance, and they go under the knife. Others feel great shame about their given ethnicity, and they fail to see its goodness and its value. And others reject their given gender and the idea that God created us either male or female and that all of that is very good. 
Now, if you look in the sermon pew card that's in front of you, you're going to notice that later on this spring, we're going to preach a mini-series called The Goodness of Givenness, and that's where we're going to explore some of these ideas even further. So I hope you're, you're, uh, you're excited about that. But we should note, we should note that even Christians have sadly embraced a negative view of creation and the created order, sometimes advocating for a very unhealthy asceticism where you are beating yourself up and you are depriving yourself of God's good gifts in creation, like certain foods, certain drinks, uh, like uh, depriving yourself of marriage or sex within marriage. The Apostle Paul had to confront this kind of thinking in 1 Timothy chapter 4. That's uh, where some in the church, he says, forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. So in other words, creation is intrinsically good and should be gratefully enjoyed as a good gift from God. Now, that's not to ignore or to deny the fact that God's good creation has been marred by the curse of sin. And so our good desire, our good hunger for food could easily devolve into gluttony. We have to recognize that. Or our good desire for sex could easily turn into lust. We have to be careful of that. So let's not be naive to the corruption of sin. It certainly has spoiled creation. Now the earth produces thorns and thistles. Now hurricanes and floods damage property and steal lives. Now microscopic viruses shut down entire nations and upend our very way of life. The whole of creation has been groaning until now because it has been corrupted by sin. But even so, the Bible insists that creation is intrinsically good. And it teaches that God's plan of redemption not, is not only to set humanity free from the bondage of sin, but his plan of redemption will set creation free as well. So Jesus became a human to redeem corrupted humans through his death and resurrection. That's the good news. That's our hope. That's the gospel. But similarly, if you think about it, he became a part of creation in order to redeem a corrupted creation. So, so listen to Paul in Romans 8, verse 19 to 21. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And so the plan of redemption that centers on Christ Jesus has hope, not just for us individually, but for all of creation itself. 
Yeah, I think it's a common assumption that, that, that Christians have a very low view of creation, that we just can't wait to go to heaven, thereby escaping all the pains and problems of this world. But that's actually not the Christian's hope. Our hope is not escape. It's renewal. We don't believe that one day we will be freed from bodily existence and forever live as spirits in a purely spiritual plane called heaven. No, that's not what Christians believe. The Bible teaches in 1 Corinthians 15 and Revelation 21 that we will be raised to life to possess new resurrected bodies, and heaven is going to actually come down to a newly renewed earth because Christ will have come to make all things new. The renewal of creation to its original state of very goodness, that is the Christian's hope. That's what we're looking forward to. Now, friends, let's conclude with our fifth fundamental truth about creation and its relationship to God. Fifthly, creation is uniquely designed by God for us. It truly is designed as a habitat for humanity. And this brings us all the way back to the beginning of the sermon where we observe that creation has a beginning and that it's moving from that beginning like a straight line. And the question is, where is that line pointing? What's the point? What's the purpose of creation? And the answer is going to be found in verses 26 to 27. Now, Henry is going to actually dive deeper into those very verses next week. So we're not going to go into them this morning, but just briefly. Briefly note with me how the creation account comes to a climax with God making creatures in his own image, in his likeness. All of creation is uniquely prepared as a habitation for a unique creature that we call man. The only being made in God's image, like a mirror capable of reflecting God's glory to the rest of creation. That's what it means to be made in his image. And that's the whole point of creation. The sun, the moon, the stars, the sky, the seas, the dry land, all plant life, all animal life, they all glorify God. And mankind especially glorifies God as his image bearers. Now, you see, even before you get to verse 26, and you get to this emphasis on mankind's unique purpose as image bearers, notice how the creation account has already dropped plenty of hints for us that this world was made especially for God's image bearers. If you think about it, Genesis 1 offers very selective reporting. It leaves out so many details, not answering so many of your questions. It doesn't tell us anything about other planets or galaxies or black holes. It doesn't tell us about quantum mechanics. It doesn't tell us about dinosaurs, right? I mean, that's the thing I want to know. It just focuses on the aspects of creation that are relevant to humanity. So Genesis 1 only makes a very brief mention of the stars. It just says in verse 16, and the stars. 
Okay, moving on. And then it focuses all of its attention on just earth, our home. When it speaks about vegetation, there's no discussion about the various classifications of plant life or, or how they pollinate or, or how they help stabilize the climate. It just says plants and trees produce seeds and fruit, which are things that we eat. As one commentator puts it, it seems to be written from the perspective not of a botanist, but a chef. When the sun and moon are mentioned, astronomers are left wanting for more details. Genesis only focuses on how they function as really just huge clocks for us to be able to tell time. And when it speaks of land animals, it doesn't distinguish between amphibians and reptiles and mammals. The narrative just focuses on livestock, what we raise and eat, or beasts of the earth, what we hunt or avoid, or creeping things, what bugs us or what we step on. These creatures are classified not based on biological distinctions, but on how they relate to us humans. Genesis is selective in its telling of the creation account because it's trying to communicate a message that God uniquely prepared a home for us where we might carry out our mission as image bearers reflecting his glory. That's the message. Some are going to look up into the night sky and ponder the infinitesimal smallness of our world compared to the infinite vastness of the universe. And Stephen Hawking is going to remind you that, quote, our galaxy is only one of some hundred thousand million galaxies that can be seen using modern telescopes. Each galaxy itself containing some hundred thousand million stars. Wow. That's how small we are in relation to the universe. And that's going to lead some to draw the conclusion that we are insignificant in the grand scheme of things and that we're only fooling ourselves to think that we as human beings are special, are unique. But King David observed the same night sky and he drew a completely opposite conclusion. In Psalm 8, verse 3 to 4, he says, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? He looked up and he felt loved by God. And so friends, as you take in all the wonders of creation, as you glory in whatever stunning images are going to be sent back by that new space telescope, take comfort in knowing that you are still intimately known and deeply loved by the God of this universe. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for Genesis 1, for this text that we are also very familiar with, but we need to be reminded of who you are, of who we are and what is our role in this world of yours. And we thank you for this great reminder that in the context of the universe, we are still known, we are still loved. Thank you, O oh Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.